Good morning. As Pastor Pastor Raul said, I am Jen, and I'm so excited to get to serve uh, you this coming school year with women's ministry and prayer ministry, and I'm honored to get to share God's word with you this morning. In 2004, there was a satirical comedy that came out about teenage Christianity in America, and the protagonist in this movie was a girl named Mary. Now, Mary was entering into her senior year of high school. She was your perfect Christian. She followed all the rules. She had the perfect Christian friends, went to the perfect private Christian school, had the perfect Christian boyfriend. She's so excited. When the summer before senior year, her boyfriend confesses to her, I'm gay. And they're terrified. They're devastated. What, what do we do? How does this affect salvation? And she is praying and claims to have a vision from the Lord to do whatever she can to save him. She interprets that as she needs to offer her virginity. So she says, we can fix this. Obviously, nothing changes. But the outcome ends up being that now she's pregnant. She's devastated. What will this mean for her reputation, for her future, her friendships? She doesn't know what to do. And she's realized that she has made a terrible mistake that she can't turn back from. And she goes to the cross, and she stands before it, and a desperate cry of prayer just starts swearing. This girl, who's probably never sworn a word in her life, is cursing the name of God. But God uses friendships throughout the movie to change her, as she befriends the unchristian, the cripple, the rebel, the promiscuous one. And God shows her through these misfits that grace isn't for those with a perfect track record, but it's for everybody. And he transforms her, shows her his love, and doesn't take her out of her circumstance, but rather saves her through it. In the text of Jonah, we have a satire much like that of Saved, where we have this Hebrew who would have known the whole law. He was a prophet. He's one of God's chosen ones, and he's made a terrible mistake. And in Jonah 2, we have his prayer for help, and the text shows how God transforms him and saves him through a great fish or whale. And looking at the example of Jonah, there's hope in knowing that when we pray in times of need, that God is faithful to transform us and to save us through unexpected means. So let's take a look at how the character of God is revealed in this text and how there's hope for us in our own troubled seas. So let me pray for us as we get started. God, we thank you for this example of Jonah, who is an ultimate failure and how you work through him and transform him and save him, God, and what hope there is for us as we fail ourselves. Open up our ears and our eyes to hear your word, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So before we get into text, we need to review what's happened in the narrative so far. So Jonah, a prophet in Israel, is called to preach judgment on the city of Nineveh in Assyria, which is east, but instead he flees to the west on a ship towards Joppa. And God is not happy with this decision and causes a storm so great that the sailors on the ship, who don't even know God, know that someone has angered 
a god somewhere, and they cast lots to figure out who it is. And Jonah comes up. He confesses, yes, I've made a mistake. And they decide the only way to calm the storm is to throw Jonah overboard. Now, for the sailors, it works out great. The sea is calmed. They're saved physically. They all come to fear the Lord. But for Jonah, he's found himself drowning in the middle of the sea. And then he becomes fish food. But what we have here is much more than just sea and waves and seaweed going on. And there are some words in the text that point to this. The first is in 2 verse 5. I'm reading from the NIV here. He says, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. And this word deep, it means it's to home in Hebrew. And it's oftentimes used with the word sea or yom in the Hebrew, especially in poetry. And this symbolizes the chaotic abyss that was the state of the universe before creation. And in Genesis 1-2, it talks about this. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And oftentimes in poetry, the deep and the sea, they represent the enemies of God or the enemies of Israel. Even in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sea represented ultimate chaos in the abyss. For uh, the Canaanites, they had the sea god Yom, which is the same word in the Hebrew, who he dwelled within that chaotic abyss in the bottom of the sea, and he was angry and violent, and he just was all of that chaos and evil. So which is why when um, Jonah in chapter 1 says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. It says, this terrified the sailors and they asked, what have you done? Like, what are you thinking angering the God of the sea? Clearly this ultimate chaos and death wish is going to come upon you. And the thing is, though, is that God, throughout the story of Uh, Israel has showed himself as the Lord of the sea. So in creation, we see that he parts or he draws the waters apart to create dry land for the earth. And then in the flood, we see that he recedes the waters for Noah and his family in the ark on dry land so that way they have a place to come stay again. We see in the Exodus where God parts the sea for the Israelites to cross through. So he is the God of the sea. And Jonah has to call out to him. So he's at the bottom of the sea, becomes fish food, and we have to think, what will he do? Where will he turn? He's been trying to run from God this whole time, but now he's at that complete point of helplessness. There's nothing you can do besides cry out to God. So think, if you were in the belly of a whale, what would you pray? Think, what do you, if you're in there, what do you see? What do you feel or taste or smell? Maybe your prayer would be something like this. (gasps) I can't breathe, God. There's bile in my eyes. It 
burns, right? Like, we would think this little prayer, something like that, a little more dramatic and, and talking about what's inside the whale. But this is not the prayer of Jonah. Instead, we have a prayer of lament that turns to a praise and recommitment. And what's really interesting about this prayer is there's not a word that's original, but every verse comes from one of the Psalms. In fact, scholars have found that there are over 16 different Psalms that Jonah drew from in this prayer. So we might ask, well, what's so special about the Psalms for them to be in prayer? In the book Answering God by Eugene Peterson, he talks about praying through the Psalms and offers it as a, like a toolkit for how to pray. And he talks about the different languages that we speak in during our day. For example, we have language two, which is the language of information, right? Label, there's chair, there's TV, screen, book, teacher. This is the language that we use in our schools. And then we have the language three of language of motivation and manipulation. So it's the language of a parent trying to shush a toddler throwing a tantrum or a politician trying to sway you to believe and to follow him, or an advertiser trying to get you to buy their product. In order to function in our world, we have to become proficient in these languages. The problem is we tend to pray or talk about God in those languages, but that's not the language of prayer. Instead, it's in language one. This language one is the language of intimacy, in relationship. It's like a language between a parent and an infant. Our youngest daughter right now is 11 months old and she's learning to walk. And so this language between parent and infant, it's, you know, she's frustrated and she moans and is whining because she wants to move but she can't get around to where she wants to be and so we offer our hands out to her. And she reaches out and she with her shaky legs, stands up, and she takes that step. And we're excited. Yay, keep going, you got it. And then she lets go, and she's been locking out her legs and falls flat on her back and hits her head, and she's crying. It's okay, and we offer the reassurance. She's protected, she's loved. She gets up and does it again. This is the language of prayer. Eugene describes this language He says, the language of prayer occurs primarily at one level, the personal, and for one purpose, salvation. The human condition teeters on the edge of disaster. Human beings are in trouble most of the time. Those who don't know they are in trouble are in the worst trouble. Prayer is the language of the people who are in trouble and know it, and who believe or hope that God can get them out. Isaac Bashevis Singer once said, I only pray when I am in trouble, but I am in trouble all the time, so I pray most of the time. Learning to pray isn't anything new. It just recovers our first language. So I'm going to reread Jonah's prayer for the first few verses and get a sense of this language one. He says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. 
The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. This is all in language one. God is personal. Experience is immediate. Salvation is critical. Peterson says there's no mere information about God here. There's no program implemented for God here. This is a cry for survival that develops into a shout of the saved. We have to learn to pray like Jonah, like that small child calling out to its parent. Otherwise, we're just avoiding or hiding, running from God, getting ourselves into a worse mess. The good news is it doesn't mean memorizing religious phrases or jargon. It just means to pray through the Psalms. It looks like picking up a psalm a day and reading through it, praying it as though it's our own heart cry. We must learn to pray the Psalms. Next, we have the transformation. So if we look at the next portion of Jonah's prayer, in verses 6 through 9, we see a shift from a lament to praise. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What's interesting is that Jonah's situation has not changed. He is still in the belly of that whale. But yet this lament and cry has turned to a shout of praise and a vow of recommitment to do what God had called him to do. So we'd ask, why would that be? And Peterson answers this in his answering God. He says, all prayer, if pursued long enough, turns to praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime. The end is always praise. God is at work in the one who prays. He's revealing his character, showing his grace, transforming us, even when the circumstances don't change. The good news is it's not faking it. It's not saying, woo, God is good, even though everything really sucks, right? Instead, it's this pouring out of ourselves like a cup of letting out all of our cries, our fears, our anxiety. And then he fills us back up with his love, his kindness, his tenderness. He reminds us who he is, that he's good. And this is the theme of the Psalms. So many of them start off as lament or, God, destroy my enemies. But they turn into shouts of of those praising him. 
Now we have the conclusion. So it says in the last verse of 2.10 that God delivers Jonah. And before it, it says that he was delivered by the swallowing of a whale or a great fish. Now sometimes we're so familiar with this story that we forget how odd it is. Like think of all the ways that God could have saved Jonah. He chose him to be swallowed by a fish. Like if you were drowning out in the middle of the sea, how would you like to be saved? Maybe like a rescue boat or a life jacket or maybe a coast guardsman swooping down from a helicopter coming to grab you up to safety. Or if we're going like really glorious and miraculous here, we can like ride a dolphin to shore, right? But that's not how God works. He chooses him for him to be swallowed by a great fish for three days and then vomits him up on the shore. And isn't this how God works throughout history. He doesn't take his people out, but rather delivers them through their troubled seas. For example, in the flood, God doesn't just keep Noah and his family out of this mess that has been going on to wipe out all the nations. Rather, he delivers his family through the water on an ark. In Exodus, it says that he could have had the Israelites walk around the sea through the land of the Philistines, but no, he chooses to part the sea and have the Israelites walk through it. And when Jesus came, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees asked him for a miraculous sign to show that he was God. And he said, none will be given but the sign of Jonah. And then he explains what he means. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus didn't skirt the issue of death or hell. He went through it to save his people. About six months ago, uh, we remember that, like, horrible time of like snow and everything closing. Well, our family had just all gotten sick twice. We had a five-month-old, a 20-month-old. My husband and I were both in grad school. I was working on the hardest research paper of my whole school career. My daughter, my youngest, was so sick that every morning she woke up coughing so furiously that she would vomit all over me for a whole week. I was exhausted I was broken, I was at the end, and I saw that there was a silent retreat coming up at Bethany, and I was like, sign me up, four hours away? (laughs) At that point, I hadn't, I think the longest I'd been away from my daughter was three hours, I was like, I'm doing this, bye-bye. So I go to the retreat, and we were told in the first opening that we needed to pray for a word that would symbolize what God had for us. I didn't pray for a word. I told God my word. I was like, God, my word is rest. I am tired. I need to sleep. I need to be healthy. I am so done. I don't want him to touch me or talk to me. And if that's not what you have for me, I can go take a four-hour nap in my car. Like, I am so tired. And God said, rest is not your word. And at first, I was taken aback, like, whoa, I don't think, you know, we're on the same program here. 
but he said, fullness I have for you. And he began to show me the ways in which in this time of my own troubled seas that I was withdrawing from my marriage, that I was being selfish, he said, look, let me breathe life here. Let me use this time to make you better, to make your marriage better. He didn't take me out of the horrible circumstance. Sleep didn't get any better. Still hasn't. But he still is delivering me through it. Oftentimes when we are in our own troubled seas, we tell God what we need. God, I need a padded security. I need a job. I need restored relationship. I need health. But the salvation that he has to offer feels a lot more like whale vomit or an empty tomb. But the good news is that's not the end. In Revelation, when he talks about when Jesus returns and when he's created the new heaven and the new earth, he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. He's speaking about that chaotic abyss. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God conquers the sea, the chaos, the evil. The question is not, will God rescue us? As we see with Jonah, he ordained the fish to rescue him before Jonah even cried out for help. The question is, will we pray for rescue and allow God to work through unexpected means? As we re-enter into a time of worship, we'll be singing a familiar hymn. And I would encourage you in this time to just pour out yourself before God, to empty out your fears, your anxiety, your anger, and allow him to refill you back up, to transform you as he teaches you about his character, maybe the unexpected ways he's wanting to save you. Take this time to just speak to him in that language one of a child with his or her parent.